it, it's not just inaccuracies. I mean, there are ways in which this whole thing seems to have been developed out of like the fictional cloth of some fever dream. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, July 27th. Today, Dylan Byers is here to talk about the latest big story about the ongoing drama at CNN, a variety piece detailing Jeff Zucker's possible efforts to buy CNN, and an alleged incident in which Zucker cried in front of Warner Brothers Discovery chief David Zasloff, complaining about negative stories in the media. But how much of this variety piece is true? Dylan is here to set the record straight. And later, Lauren Sherman drops by to discuss the $4 billion valuation for Kim Kardashian's fashion brand and another round of layoffs at Hearst. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers to talk about what else? CNN. Dylan, how are you, man? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, There was a story about CNN that popped on Variety a couple days ago. Headlined, Inside the Battle for CNN, Jeff Zucker, David Zaslov, Chris Licht, and 18 months of crazy backstabbing. Now, we kind of know that there was 18 months of crazy backstabbing. We know that... Jeff Zucker and David Zaslov and Chris Licht, uh, they were talking to lots of reporters on background, off the record. They were talking to you, certainly, who was owning this beat from the very get-go. This story opens, Dylan, with a scene in the Faena Hotel in Miami Beach. Great hotel, great bar. So there's a scene here where Jeff is is breezing through the Faena Hotel because if you're in Miami, you breeze through hotel lobbies, obviously. David Zaslov is sitting there There is a big summit going on, lots of corporate leaders and Saudis. Zucker approached Zaslov with tears in his eyes, and he complained that Chris Licht, his CNN successor, was unfairly maligning him in the press, according to sources familiar with the conversation. Zucker insisted he would never deploy such a low-blow tactic. The story goes on. Zaslov brushed him off, blah, blah, blah. He attacks Jeff and criticizes him, saying... You're trying to buy CNN. What are you talking about? Anyway, this is a very long story. Everyone go read it. First of all, according to sources familiar with the conversation, it's clear throughout this piece, the sources familiar with the conversation are sources close to Zaslov and Chris Licht, if not them personally. What was your takeaway from this piece? Is Jeff Zucker trying to buy CNN? Did this conversation happen in Miami? How hands-on is David Zaslov in trying to push Jeff Zucker away, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? You know this beat better than anybody. You know, I started reading this piece. I I got a call. Someone told me, asked what I thought about the piece before I'd even read it. And they wanted to know because I'm actually mentioned in the piece. And so I should say from the get go, I've been like very reticent to talk about this piece or write about this piece for two reasons. One, it's just not It's sort of weird when you're involved in the piece talking about it because everything sort of seems you know, like a conflict, I guess. But then two, as I read this piece, pretty much from the jump, it became very clear that there was so much in here that was, I don't even want to say false, because in a way, it sort of goes beyond that. 
it, it's not just inaccuracies. I mean, there are ways in which this whole thing seems to have been developed out of like the fictional cloth of some fever dream that some angered again, I don't know who at WBD or former CNN or whatever. But even from that vignette you described, every paragraph seems to have things that are just sort of wrong. So you've got, first of all, this conference you mentioned, David Zaslav wasn't there for the conference, as the piece alleges, as I, as I found out. He, he was there for another reason. Zucker didn't just walk up to him apropos of nothing in the middle of the hotel lobby. Uh, they actually made plans to have a meeting, and then they went and had a meeting in, in private. So... Mm. If Zucker had tears in his eyes, which from everyone I know who knows Zucker finds that pretty yeah. implausible, uh, only Zaslav would know about it. That was the first thing that jumped out at me was, if you know Jeff Zucker, they had, look, men cry. You might cry in private. Men cry. Hey, him crying in a public lobby okay to in cry. front of David Zaslav is tough. <laughs> <laughs> so this immediately, along with like the initial spelling of Zaslav's name, which was misspelled in the headline, like this immediately just sends up all sorts of red flags, but what, whatever. It's a vignette. There, These are anecdotes. Sometimes things are wrong, I guess. But then, what? and this is sort of the part that I can't get over, the author at Variety alleges that Jeff Zucker has spent the last year traveling the world to put together a coalition of investors, mm-hmm. including Jeff Bezos and Roman Abramovich, who, by the way, is sanctioned by the U.S. so for his ties to Putin, so he can't, he couldn't actually be an investor in something like this. Mm-hmm. George Soros's son, which gives it this whole sort of weird conspiracy theory, you know, like right wing conspiracy theory tint. Mm-hmm. And after every assertion that every time the a new potential investor that Jeff Zucker has supposedly been talking to is introduced, there's an on the record statement from Zucker's spokesperson, Risa Heller, saying. Jeff Zucker never talked to this person. And in some cases, Jeff Zucker has never talked to this person. So right there, you're sort of like, what are we supposed to do with this? There are all of these assertions that run completely counter to the two years of reporting I've been doing on CNN about a whether or not Zucker is even interested in buying CNN and how, if he were interested, he would go about it. And mm. anyway, I, I don't want to I don't want to ramble here because I do think that the it pretty quickly, I think the industry passed judgment on this piece and, and you can go online and find the reaction to it. And I think by and large, the reaction is like, this feels not credible throughout. And mm-hmm. of course, the assertions about my reporting, the assertions about Tim Alberta at the Atlantic's reporting, mm. there's been blowback to that from our man, John Kelly, and from the Atlantic editor, Jeffrey Goldberg. But it's just, it's so crazy to me, I guess, not that a story, I think it's crazy to a lot of people who I talk to that this story ran in the first place. I think what is more alarming to me is that we are now multiple days out from this story having been published, and Variety has not addressed any of the demonstrably false claims in the story. And so... As reticent as I was to engage with this for all of the obvious reasons, it occurred to me that if this story had nothing to do with me or with CNN, which is a story I'd covered a lot, and I saw how sort of crazy this story was as a media reporter, I probably would address it. And so here we are breaking the fourth wall. But I I do think it bears note that this story is sort of just out there in the ether as false as it is. 
So one thing I do want to clarify that you just said, there are multiple examples in this variety piece by Tatiana Siegel where she says, for example, like a Turkish bank, you know, sent a letter on stationery to another firm claiming to represent Jeff Zucker in his effort to lead a, quote, acquisition of CNN. Or there are multiple examples saying Jeff Zucker was trying to get together some financing to possibly take over CNN. And then you have a bunch of Risa Heller quotes flatly denying that. I know from yeah. politics, Dylan, fairly, like, I don't always trust Flax. Yeah, sometimes the, people the, deny the good things. Ones, no, the good ones sure. are never going to lie to you necessarily, but they can mislead with language. Like, these are lots of just flat out denials. Are we saying that, like, Jeff Zucker has definitely no interest in acquiring CNN because... Even no. in that Ben no, no, Mullen no, piece might. that came out in the New York Times back in June, he suggested that Zucker was interested in buying CNN. And that's certainly been gossip in media and finance circles uh, over the last six months. Totally. Well, first, to your first point, people, Flax especially, say things all the time that obscure the truth, right? So right up until the point that Chris Licht was ousted from CNN... There were people at Warner Brothers Discovery saying to me, we have total conviction in Chris Licht as the leader of CNN, right? (laughs) So, yes, it's hard to trust those things. I recently reported that there's a lot of conversation going on among the Sun Valley set about whether or not David Zaslav is going to sell CNN and if he might do so to private equity. And a spokesperson there told me that, no, there is there have been no conversations about selling to private equity. And is there probably some gray area? Like, have there been some very unofficial, informal conversations in which that idea has been entertained? And is David Zaslav probably aware that that's a discussion that's out there? And is it going around somewhere in his mind? Yeah, probably is. I think what is different here is that if you're talking about something so simple as like two people meeting or someone mm-hmm. being approached for financing and then the statement that is on the record is this person was not only never approached for financing but this person has never met with this person like i don't know to me that would give me serious pause as a reporter now does jeff zucker uh, for my own reporting do i know that jeff zucker hates the way that he was kicked out of cnn yes does he miss running cnn yes in an ideal world Would he probably run CNN if given the opportunity? I think he'd probably consider it. Does he want to buy CNN? I don't know. Does he have any plans to buy CNN? I can say 99% certainty, no, he does not. And in fact, Jerry Cardinale at, at Redbird, where Jeff Zucker is sort of running a fund or a joint fund, has gone out there and said, we have no plans to buy CNN. Hmm. So- Look, as as Woodward and Bernstein would say, like you you get to the best yeah. attainable version of the truth. And yes, as in business as in politics, we are always dealing with a little bit of gray area. And people, you know, something is true until it's not. We run into that all the time. But there's a difference between that sort of murkiness and then things just being demonstrably not true. And in trying to re-report aspects of this variety story, in talking to as many people as I can talk to. It's just clearly demonstrably that some of these things are demonstrably not true. And then I would say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, like the assertions made about my own reporting, at what right. at one point the author of this variety story says, Dylan Byers never mentioned that Jeff Zucker was the one who greenlit 
CNN Plus, which cost the company $300 million. I reported on that on Jeff Zucker <laughs> driving through CNN Plus despite David Zaslav's reservations countless times. And by the way, do you know who broke the news that it was going to cost $300 million a year? I did. So, <laughs> And somewhere at Variety's offices in the Penske building, there are editors sitting with this email in their inbox that has a link to the story where I broke the $300 million figure while talking about how Zucker was driving through CNN Plus. And they're not doing anything with that. And that is, I don't know about you, Peter, but like you've, you've been around the block a few times in political reporting and business reporting. That to me just seems like uh, sort of beyond the pale. Yeah. Also, and this is the last thing I'll ask you, Dylan, the writer sort of claims that you're just generally like a puppet for Jeff Zucker and and, and so is is Puck. (laughs) Uh And it's like clearly the full scope of our conversations about CNN and Jeff Zucker were not considered, uh, including this podcast, by the way, in, in which you and I for the last 18 months have had spirited conversations about what Zucker's contribution to CNN being good being bad, being good for business, bad for journalism, vice versa, whatever. And I can also say, I know this, that like a lot, a lot of your sources <laughs> during the Zucker Cuomo thing, during the ascension of Chris Licht, during the last year have been high ranking people inside and outside the network. And not only Jeff Zucker, I know I won't say right. who or assume who you did and didn't talk to, but I do know that. Yeah, I, I, look, I'm not, Naive. I, I I understand one that I've written about the CNN story is a story I've I've covered a lot and doggedly and you and I've talked about it a lot and I've given more real estate to covering CNN in the last eighteen months than any other news organization. I'm not. I'm again. I'm I'm totally clear eyed about that. In that time, as you and I have discussed, I've been talking with by by the time you arrive at the last few months of my reporting on the Licht era, more than like fifty sources inside the building to say nothing of the other people at Warner Brothers Discovery and the former CNN people that I talked to, so on and so forth. Tim Alberta, by his own admission, talked to more than 100 people for the magazine story that he spent more than a year working on. Uh I think if you were to talk to the executives at Warner Brothers Discovery about how Chris Licht did as the CEO of CNN, I think they would offer you a pretty clear-eyed assessment of what the problems were. And I think they would probably tell you that the problems even went beyond what I or Tim Alberta reported. And so this insinuation that somehow like, I'm just like getting this like stream of negative critical takes on Chris Lick's tenure from like his predecessor and channeling that, I think, forget about my, my own feelings about that. It just ignores the litany of reporting that I and others have done, and that in and of itself seems sort of like this, like, you know, I, I guess what I would say, that would make me, that would inspire questions on my part about how many sources and which sources the Variety Reporter is talking to, because it's ignoring a vast body of work that I think, as you pointed out, is relies on a great, great many sources from all sides of this story. Dylan, thank you for coming on the podcast and giving, in the words of Jody Powell, former White House press secretary, the other side of the story. Uh, <laughs> we look forward to your continued reporting on CNN, which is, you know, as far as I'm concerned, where the buck stops. Thanks, buddy. Thank you, Peter. 
When we come back, Lauren Sherman is here to talk about the $4 billion valuation for Kim K's fashion brand. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy, joined by the one and only Lauren Sherman. Happy Thursday. Hi, Ben. So, Lauren, I wanted to talk to you about this pretty insane valuation for Skims, which raised $207 million in their Series C last week at what I assume is a post-money valuation of $4 billion. That's private market valuation, so who knows what that really means. Good for Kim Kardashian, obviously. But Lauren, what, what do you make of that number, given that Skims has something like $750 million in net sales? Is that realistic? Is it a huge sort of tech valuation? Yeah. When we were talking about this last week, we were kind of going through the motions of what is an appropriate valuation for a business like this, like a product-driven business. You could call it a fashion business, I guess. And the truth is, for these private companies, some of these businesses get a 10 times valuation and they're promising growth that is like tech level. That never actually happens, but they promise it. And it, it, realistically, you see the more sort of mature or responsible acquisitions that happen in fashion. And it's like two to three times, if that, in terms of- Two to three yeah, times sales. Yeah, exactly. I don't think it's a crazy valuation. Do I think it's- going to be hard for them to get there super fast without a gazillion stores and shipping a lot of product? Yes. And so the question is, I know they're going to open a bunch of retail next year, but I think it's like 10 stores. It's not, as I said in the piece, Victoria's Secret has their main competitor, has 800 stores still, and they make you know, well over... $4 billion a year in sales, but that number is inflated. Most analysts would say that a retail company at this point in America, if it's sort of saturated, should do $3 billion a year. And you can have a really good business that's obviously still ginormous, but and you can be heavily distributed, but you're not sacrificing on margin. You're not having to mark stuff down just to move through product really quickly. And the the genius of skims from the beginning has been that you know, they don't do a ton of sales. I think they do. They do have a section on the site that is marked down things, but that's tends to be sort of novelty items that they tested and maybe didn't work out. Their, their main product only goes on sale, I think, twice a year. And that's how Victoria's Secret used to be. But now it's just so promotion driven. So, and also there's just not as much distribution possibilities. You're not going to open 800 stores. You're you maybe they'll have 200 stores at some point. But how fast are they going to do that? When do they want to IPO? What are they promising on that path? Those are all the big questions and Skims has definitely replaced Victoria's Secret in the cultural conversation, but is it ever going to perform on the stock market the way Limited Brands, the company that owned Victoria's Secret for many years, used to. It was during the Victoria's Secret rise, the limited stock was like the best performing stock on the stock market for years. The people who started at Victoria's Secret or the limited in the early 80s when the limited bought it from the original founders, if they stayed for 10 years or they held onto their stock, they made a lot of money. 
And it made Les Wexner one of the richest men in the world, let alone definitely the richest guy in Ohio. <laughs> um, but whether or not that's going to happen with skims, I don't I don't know. It's just a different it's a different market today. And they're promising a lot. Yeah, well, they're like in totally different stratospheres right now, because as you noted, Victoria's Secret has like 10 times as much net sales and the company is worth a lot less as, as a multiple. Skims is also doing a lot of its volume in wholesale at the moment, right? To other stores like Nordstrom's, which is a, a lower margin business. So it seems like long term, they need to get into brick and mortar, too, if they want to expand and justify whatever kind of IPO exit that Kim Kardashian and her investors are looking for. Sure. For When Skims originally launched, it was direct-to-consumer online only, and they have had a ton of success in that space. And you can do tons of volume online, but having brick and mortar actually increases your volume online. It lifts everything. And the cost of setting up brick and mortar, there's a bigger cost up front, but it tends to be more money in the long run because you spend so much on paid advertising online you can't reach every single person. It's actually can be cheaper in the long run to do more brick and mortar. So they're going to have to ramp up brick and mortar and wholesale. It's interesting. I've had so many conversations the last few weeks about the current wholesale market. Last decade, apparel brands at every price point have been moving away from wholesale because the direct retail selling straight online or selling in your own stores. It's just the margins and the profits are so much bigger. And so they've been moving away from it and trying to make more of the business direct to consumer. But then during the pandemic and just the last couple of years, wholesale has really bounced back and people have begun to rely on it a lot more. And I think that's skims as part of that. They had having that distribution in Nordstrom, you walk into a Nordstrom you go to the intimates department and it's basically all skims. They there is other stuff, but you barely. It's they have the most floor space. So that has been a big thing for them for awareness. And you need wholesale for marketing and for overall revenue, but it's just never gonna do for you what having your own stores will. Well, Lauren, I know you're working on some more reporting about skims that's coming out later today, looking a little bit more at the sort of potential. IPO strategy, how the Skims investors are going to exit out of this thing. But before you go, I also wanted to get your thoughts on the layoffs at Hearst, which appears to involve a little bit of a restructuring where Seventeen Magazine is um, not disappearing, but it's sort of getting folded under the leadership of Cosmo and their editor-in-chief, Jessica Giles. That sort of makes sense to me, but I I guess I'm confused why either of these brands really exist in this moment anymore when there's, there's so much competition on other platforms. When so many teenage girls are going to TikTok or Snapchat or Twitter, do you still see a place for these brands in the marketplace? Or are they having to sort of adjust their strategy? Or do you think this is sort of a prolonged extinction event? I don't know. It beats me why they still exist. No, <laughs> I, I think, you know, you have to remember, we we write more about Condé Nast at Puck because there's more interest, there's more legacy brands. And I think the the family that owns Condé Nast has done a better job. I don't want to say better job, but there's just a lot more going on there culturally than there is at Hearst. Hearst is a very conservative company. They run it very conservatively. When they do do layoffs, they're very measured. It doesn't feel like out of nowhere. If you look at this round of layoffs, they make sense. It's sad and I feel bad 
for all the people who got laid off, but it was like kind of mid-level people who, if you got to cut costs, you got to cut costs. And there were a couple magazines, I want to call them out here specifically, but that are were a little bloated. And so it makes sense that that happened. In terms of Cosmo and 17, you know, I was told that the editor-in-chief of 17 wanted to step down And so this gave them an opportunity to restructure. And that's why 17 is moving into the Cosmo universe. I think for many years, Hearst sort of was able to ride on the fact that these are big brands. And honestly, Cosmo, even five or six years ago, was still hugely relevant. And especially to advertisers, like if you're Colgate or something and you want to reach young women who are looking at health and wellness stuff like, yeah, I'm going to go to Cosmo where they have a gazillion people, but the nature of media has changed so much and you can target those people so much more easily through, you know, as we know, Google, Facebook, TikTok, blah, blah, blah. The necessity of a big CPG company to advertise with brands like Hearst has declined. And so I don't know. I think that if you look at what these legacy publishing houses are doing, what the biggest successes they've had have been at big brands that have sort of become more niche. So I brought both of these publications up here Mm -hmm. before, but you look at GQ, which is now a style publication for guys or whoever that are really interested in fashion. It's not this broad sweeping general interest publication geared towards male readers. Town and Country, another good example. Wealth porn, it's targeted. It knows that its reader still reads print and it's not trying to be everything to everybody. And so I think what happened with publications like Cosmo and Seventeen and at Condé, Glamour, and to a lesser extent, Teen Vogue, which did have a bit of a relevance boost a few years back, but has really, really receded, is that they didn't move with the culture. And really, could they have? Like, could Cosmo just be a TikTok brand at this point? Probably not. I don't know. But these companies, especially Hearst, just run in this very conservative, careful way that they probably still make a decent amount of advertising off of it. And that's why it still exists. Like they've sold off her sold Marie Claire. Like they're not afraid of shedding. So there must be some value in holding on to something like Cosmo, probably just the brand value, but it just doesn't feel like they're managing it that well. Yeah. It definitely feels like there's a parallel to the decline of cable television sure. that we talk about all the time at at Puck. You got one legacy business that had been very profitable and continues to be pretty profitable, but is obviously in decline and giving way to other platforms where the ad rates just aren't the same. At some level, you kind of know that the future of the business is going to be on these other platforms, but it's really, really hard to make that transition without losing access to that revenue in the meantime. And that's why you see so much retrenchment and both Condé Nast and Hearst sort of coalescing around a handful of top tier brands and everyone else either getting folded underneath or disappearing altogether. But Lauren, thanks as always for stopping by and, and chatting about all this. Totally fascinating as always. And uh, we'll keep an eye out for the rest of your reporting on Skims. Thanks, Ben. It was great to chat. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. 
If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.